Once again, good morning. Um, our current sermon series uh, through the book of Kings has been entitled Jesus and the End of Israel. And over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how the slow descent of Israel into exile eventually leads to the redemption in Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes us from exile into the kingdom, from slavery to salvation, from famine to feasting, from pollution to purity, from anxiety to assurance. And today we're going to talk about how the temple fits in into this story, how the temple moves from being looted to becoming a temple of living stones. And we're going to do that today by looking at Second Chronicles chapter 25. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would correct us, you would encourage us, you would rebuke us, you would purify us, you would strengthen us and sanctify us by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to take us on a journey, and I'm going to start with the definition of the word home. Home. I looked that word up, and it's about a place where a person permanently lives, in a household, in a family. Home. Sometime in the mid-90s, uh, 1990s, not 90s, 1990s, um, my family and I were in Kentucky, and my dad wanted, wanted to build a house, a home for his family in Nigeria. So he got the builders to do what builders do, um, to set up the construction site, to set up the walls, build the walls, lay down what needed to be laid, just basically build a house for his family. And when the house was done, we moved in. We didn't move into a home, we moved into a house. But what made it into a home was that we lived in this house. We lived in this building. We decorated the rooms. We put up pictures of family members and things we like, of, of, of artwork. We laughed together, we prayed together, we talked together, we made a mess of things together. We, we, we lived together and we fellowshiped with one another. And every time I think of home and I think of that building back in Nigeria, it's those memories that come back because that is what makes it home. And when you read Genesis 1 with that kind of picture, it seems like what my dad did in building a house and what most of us have done in the places that we live right now is the same thing that God was doing. Day one, he creates night and day. And then in day four, he fills it with the sun, moon, and stars. Second day, he creates the season, the skies. And then on the fifth day, he populates it with fish and birds. On the third day, he creates the land. And then on the sixth day, he creates the animals and man. So it's like he's creating spaces, places, for things to dwell, to be comfortable in. But then we get to day seven, and we see that God comes to rest. And the day is regarded as holy, because he's not doing any work on that day. He just comes and he rests. And this is an important concept for us because in the context of Genesis 1, the time when Moses wrote the five books of the, the first five books of the Bible, the people believed that there was only one place that a divine being 
could rest. And that was in their temple. So Moses wants us to get this picture of, oh, God is coming to rest in his creation. That all of creation in one way or another was a cosmic temple was a place where God was resting. And it wasn't rest in terms of like, oh, I need to regain my strength, I'm so tired. It was actually rest in terms of taking residence. So when my family moved into our house, we were resting, we were taking up residence. And so God was taking up residence in his cosmic temple that he had just finished setting up. And that changes the way I look at creation. And that changes the way I look at the word temple. That changes the way I look at the word home. Home for me is where I take up residence. Home for God was where he took up residence. And that is what completed creation. Adam and Eve had a fully satisfying experience of what it means to have a true home because God rested, took up residence with them. And all of creation was God's cosmic temple. And this was God's desire all along, you know, because he wanted us in our, tr- in, 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 in our relationship with him. He wanted all of humanity to experience that joy and that peace of having rest and contentment with him. He wanted to give us a home. But then he does something mind-blowing, which we sort of see in Psalm 8. This majestic, high God gives Mankind, humanity, dominion over everything, over his cosmic temple. He gave him dominion to rule over everything. And when he did that, he intertwined the fate of his temple with the actions of humanity. And we all know how the story unfolds. Our parents didn't obey the word of the Lord. Sin came into the world. They were cast out of Eden, out of the presence of God. And all the homes that we have now are broken as a result of it. There's disunity. We say words that are hurtful and we can't take them back. We don't have as much peace and joy in our families. Some people have not even experienced a home before. They have families, but they haven't experienced a home before. And it's because of that fall, that casting away, As the story continues to unfold, we see God desires to make a proximal temple. So he tells Moses, build a tabernacle. And later on, he gives instructions for Solomon, son of David, to build a temple. And once Solomon has built this temple, he prays a prayer of dedication. And at the end of it, God says this to him. I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. But if you turn aside from following me, you are your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss. And they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, 
because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid, on, laid hold on other gods and worshipped and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So God creates a cosmic temple, but then he does the same thing. The fate of this, he creates a proximal temple, does the same thing. The fate of this proximal temple is intertwined with the actions of his people. And more specifically, in the passage I just read, it's intertwined with the actions of the kings. So if the king is good, God's resting place is safe. If the king is bad, then there are dire consequences. This brings me to my first point that takes us to 2 Chronicles 25, where we see that the temple is looted. Starting with the end of Solomon's reign, Solomon's reign, the people did, did not keep the law. There's one bad king after another, one bad king after another. And then by the time we come to Amaziah, the temple has already been looted three times. But we're told in 2 Chronicles 25 from verse 1 to 5 that Amaziah was a good king. But so you would expect that everything was going to be fine. He was familiar with the law of the Lord. Some of his father's servants had assassinated his father. And when the kingdom was firmly in his hand, he decided, okay, I need to punish these people before they did. And he assassinates them, but he doesn't kill their family members, which was the custom of the people at the time. Rather, because he knew the law of the Lord, he said, no, we are not going to kill the children. Every man dies for their own sin. So he was familiar with God's law. He was a good king. So what happened that during his time, the resting place of God was looted? What did he do wrong? During the reign of Jehoram, that is Amaziah's great-grandfather, there's this kingdom, Edom, uh, that was under uh, Judah's thumb, a vassal kingdom. And Edom decided to rebel during Jehoram's reign. And so coming to Amaziah's reign, he said, okay, I need to bring these guys back under subjection to, to Judah. And so he gathers his army, but not trusting that his army is enough, he makes an alliance with 100,000 men of the northern kingdom, Israel. He says, let's go to battle. He gives them money and hires them, basically. And that was his first mistake. That's, what, that's the first thing that put the temple in danger. He made an unholy alliance with the northern kingdom because at this point, the northern kingdom was living in sin. And God said, no. Nah. Think about this. You woke up this morning. You needed pep. You were so much in need of pep. You went to your go-to thing, which is? Coffee. There you go. You went to coffee. You set it to brew, and as you were standing there waiting for it to brew, the smell wafted up to your nostrils. Oh, life is going to be good soon. You poured it into your cup. You got your creamer. You mixed it in. Oh, took your sugar, poured it in. Oh, it's calling your name now. It's calling your name. You take a sip. And you immediately spit it out because you put salt instead of sugar. Not the best kind of coffee. No. Just like coffee and salt aren't the best mix, so also light and darkness should not have mixed. Amaziah should not have made that alliance with Israel. He should have trusted in God to see him through the battle. But he didn't believe 
that God could help him. So he made that unholy alliance and he put the temple in danger. But from verse 7 to 11, we see that a prophet tells Amaziah, you got to break this alliance. God's going to be with you. Don't do this. Amaziah is worried about the money. But he agrees. He says, okay. And he loses the money, which is what usually happens when we don't ask God for help before we plan something. We end up losing resources. But he obeys. He goes to Edom. He gains victory over Edom. Celebrates. And then does something really strange, which is his second mistake. He carries the gods of the people he defeated, gods who could not deliver their own people, brings them back to, the, to Jerusalem. Souvenirs? No. He sets them up as his own gods. He worships them and makes sacrifices to them. Does this make sense? No. God gave you victory. And then you change gods. At this point, Amaziah is no, Amaziah's God is no longer just God. He has other gods. The 100,000 men that he sent home, they're grumbling. They're like, how can Amaziah do this to us? We are valiant men. What are we going to tell our families back home? That we were sent away in shame because God didn't want us to fight with them? What? We're not holy? And so, as they go back, they loot the towns of Judah and carry off spoil. They kill 3,000 people because they're angry. They're angry. And so, Amaziah's second sin of idolatry becomes something else. To a third, it becomes a third problem. Pride, a disposition of pride. Because once he gets back home, he's like, all right, we need to deal with Israel. Okay, we need to deal with Israel. That's very funny because he was concerned about his small army. He was concerned about his small army attacking Edom. Israel was much, much more powerful than, than Edom. But here, because of his victory, he's puffed up, emboldened. Oh, I can take care of these guys. Sure, I can do it. And so he sends a message to the king of Israel. Let's meet in battle. And the king of Israel, who is not a good king, is like, just be content with your victory. Don't. Don't do this. Don't do this. But Amaziah doesn't listen. And so the temple is in danger. Because what has happened is, when he let the idolatry in, the idols, the gods, looted Amaziah. They defeated Amaziah. And so the temple was just simply a reflection of what was happening to Amaziah. So Joash comes, breaks down parts of the walls of Jerusalem, and he loots the temple of God, the resting place of God, a picture of the state of Israel, another decline, a sort of decreation of the temple. He's killed. Why? Because true to God's word, the fate of the temple is intertwined with the actions of the people, specifically the king. So what does God do? Eventually, as we move forward in the story, king after king after king comes and does evil. We get little respites in Uzziah and King Jotham and Hezekiah, but Manasseh's reign is so evil 
so evil, and that's the last straw. Even when Josiah comes after Manasseh and does a great reform, it's not enough anymore. The people go into exile because they have not obeyed the word of the Lord. And so the temple is destroyed completely by Nebuchadnezzar, God's resting place. The thing that made Israel home to God was destroyed. The thing that was home to Israel, they, they no longer had a home. It was taken from them. After the exile, the temple was rebuilt. And we are grateful because that's not the end of the story. It was rebuilt. It was not as great as before, but it was rebuilt. And God had a plan. I love it whenever Jesus shows up. Just generally speaking, when Jesus shows up, things change. And it's fantastic to watch and experience. I love it. Jesus, the one true king, shows up. And he comes to this temple that has been rebuilt. He looks around and he clears it and he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's a startling statement. Keep in mind, the temple is where the divine presence, presence rests. It is the home of God. And Jesus says, my father's house. He's claiming it as his own. This house belongs to me and my father. Do not make it a house of trade. And then he clears it out. Money changers out the door, animals out. Mark even says that he wouldn't let anybody walk through the temple. He shuts it down completely. And if you want to know what's happening there specifically, I invite you to go back to uh, Dan's sermon on this. Dan preached a sermon on this in February of 2018 titled, What Sign Will You Show Us? It's from the passage of John chapter 2. And if you want to know what's happening there, go back to that sermon. It's online. But Jesus is shutting down the temple completely. And that's because he's doing something new, something different. The house, the resting place of God, it's going to be different. Though every king before him failed, Jesus did not fail in keeping the commandments of God. He is not like Amaziah. He does not make an alliance with the enemies of God. He does not worship anyone except for the Lord. And there is no pride in his heart. He humbles himself unto death on the cross, obeys even unto death on the cross, when he didn't have to die. He perfectly fulfills the law by his death and his life. And because of that, he does something new with the temple. When he shut down the temple, he inaugurated a new temple, the temple of his body. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And through him, by his death and by his resurrection, he has made you and I become part of that temple. The new resting place of God. The place where God takes up residence, where he rests. His home. Us. Okay. Pause for just a moment.
and think about this. The highest heavens cannot contain God. His majesty, his greatness, his infinite awesomeness, they cannot contain God. Yet, God, fully and holy, resides in you and me. I don't understand it. I, I just don't understand it. It's too awesome to deliberate and think about. And I get excited when I think about the presence of God being amongst his people because of what Jesus Christ did. And it's a presence that never leaves. Why? Because it's, it's, not, it's not dependent on my actions. I've put my faith in Jesus. It's dependent on Jesus' obedience. He's the king. And he's fully obeyed the law. And he never fails. So the house of God, the temple of God, you and I, it's not going to be destroyed. The presence stays. And so in 2 Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are told that we are living stones, being built up into a spiritual house. And Christ, also a living stone, is the cornerstone of this spiritual house. Oh, that is an awesome thing to think about. That you and I are being made into a place where God resides permanently. And I struggled with this when I was working through it. And thank God for Matt, who talked to me and helped me through this. Because my experience isn't always the experience of joy and peace and contentment of God's presence with me all the time. I believe that he's here. I believe he's resting with me. But that's not my experience all the time. And then Matt points it out to me. We are being built up into a spiritual house. The construction is still going on. It's not over. It's like Genesis 1, they filed or something. Or when my father was building his house and it's not complete, maybe all the walls have been painted, but we haven't really moved in yet. Work is still going on. So we get proximal experience of God's presence and joy. But in the end, the new heavens and the new earth come. We are going to be fully and completely made into that spiritual house, and it's going to be glorious. We have a deposit of the Holy Spirit right now. Oh, but on that final day, it's going to be much more glorious, greater, more wonderful. But look around the people who you're sitting by. If you're seated next to a believer, you're seated next to family. You're seated next to joy and love and fellowship of, of that person has God in them. The presence of God is with you and with them. This is home. We're never alone. Wherever we go, we carry the presence of God with us. And how I long to offer this invitation to anyone who has never met Jesus Christ. It is dark out there in exile, outside Eden, cast away from the presence of God. It is dark out there. Come to Jesus. Come to the joy, the fellowship, the life of this spiritual house. Come. There is unity. There is life. Christ is waiting.
Come home. Come home. Let us pray. You are our dwelling place. and You dwell in us. And we will be forever grateful for what you have done. We thank you that with you we are home and you have found a home in us. You have made your home in us, Father. We are grateful. May we live out fully, be fully conscious of the fact that we are your presence in the world and work in the hearts of people who are yet to meet you, that they might also come home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.